Traveling is a frequent part of life. At least that was true until COVID arose and shut down most uh, normal things in life. But how we travel says a lot about who we are. And how we travel says a lot about what we think of other people. And who's in control becomes the fundamental issue of how we perceive travel. Some of you fly a lot for a living. And most of us have flown at times in life. And if there's one thing for certain about air travel, it's that you're not in control. You can race, you can fuss, you can fume, you can cry, but you have no control over your pace when you fly. It's all determined by people, by circumstances out of your control, by aircraft maintenance, by airport weather, by flight crew readiness, by pilot judgment, air traffic controllers, certain policies is out of your control. And the sooner you realize that when you fly, the better. Many of us travel frequently by car, often alone, sometimes distances. And if there's one thing for certain about car travel, when you travel alone, it's generally that you are in control. You determine the departure time, you determine the speed. You determine the cargo allowances, you determine safe driving or lack thereof. You determine the number of pit stops and the times for eating and the times for fueling. Much of car travel is in your hands. You're in control. But traveling by vehicle with a group of others, well, that's a different story. You want to have control, but you really don't. You may have some influence, but you can't determine everything. There's another person driving. They determine the speed and the safety. There are other people around who have their own stomachs and their own bladders, and you can't alter them. You're just one voice in the battle over the temperature of the car and over the volume in the car. You can learn an awful lot about yourself when you travel with others. I've had to learn the hard way again and again, first in marriage, then in a different country, then with four children. But when you learn your group and how to travel well with them, that kind of travel can actually be the most enjoyable because you realize it's not all about you. And if you foster unity and harmony in all kinds of ways, the trip itself and the destination can all be second to none. We've learned this as a family through all kinds of travel to all kinds of places. But it only happens if you adjust your expectations and rein in your freedoms. Today, we're in part two of a section in Romans on Christian living in the diversity of the body of Christ. Last week, we looked at the first dozen verses or so of Romans chapter 14. Today, we're in the rest of that chapter. Next week, we'll conclude this mini subsection with the first part of chapter 15. All three weeks are part of our longer fall series called Living Out the Gospel. And what it means to live in harmony, in unity with other believers, even when we have different convictions and different consciences. And you don't need me to tell you that it could hardly be timelier for us. We live in a world of immense tension and even conflict. And that threatens to permeate, to seep into our own church, our own relationships. I was reminded of that on several occasions again this week. I'm ready for this section to be over because it speaks personally to my life. That's what the Bible does when we work through passages and books. 
It highlights issues that we'd rather avoid and would do so if we had the choice. But God knows better. Romans chapter 14, I'd invite you to stand. We're going to read beginning in verse 13. Actually, I'll start in verse 12 where we left off last week and read to the end of the chapter. This is the New International Version. So then each of us will give an account of ourselves to God. Therefore, let us stop passing judgment on one another. Instead, make up your mind not to put any stumbling block or obstacle in the way of a brother or sister. I'm convinced, being fully persuaded in the Lord Jesus, that nothing is unclean in itself. But if anyone regards something as unclean, then for that person, it is unclean. If your brother or sister is distressed because of what you eat, you're no longer acting in love. Do not, by your eating, destroy someone for whom Christ died. Therefore, do not let what you know is good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating or drink and drinking, but of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Because anyone who serves Christ in this way is pleasing to God and receives human approval. Verse 19, let us therefore make every effort to do what leads to peace and to mutual edification. Do not destroy the work of God for the sake of food. All food is clean, but it is wrong for a person to eat anything that causes someone else to stumble. It is better not to eat meat or drink wine or to do anything else that will cause your brother or sister to fall. So whatever you believe about these things, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who does not condemn himself by what he approves. But whoever has doubts is condemned if they eat, because their eating is not from faith, and everything that does not come from faith is sin. Thanks, you may have a seat. Thanks for honoring the scriptures in that way. Hope you picked up a copy of the worship program. On the back is an outline of our sermon. You can pick that up on your way in. Uh, you can download it online as we send uh, email messages to you. Ways to follow along with what we're looking at today. We're going to do what we did last week, which is spend the bulk of our time looking at key understandings and then spend a little bit of time uh, looking at key principles and several key applications. Four points in your outline under key understandings, the first of which is this. I have obligations to protect my brother. Paul does this on a number of occasions in this chapter here. He begins with a command and then he goes on to explain it and to show its relevance to their lives. Here he gives a blanket command to all the Roman believers, let us stop passing judgment on one another. And then he speaks to one group, the larger group, what we might call the strong. Paul identifies them at the beginning of chapter 15, but his message is pointed here. Make up your mind not to put any stumbling block or obstacle in the way of a brother or sister. Let's do a quick review of the cultural background here in these chapters. The early church in Rome was made up of Jews and Gentiles, Gentiles being the majority group. Most of them had come from deeply pagan backgrounds. The Jews, who were the minority group, had religious and moral background. And both of those groups brought their experience into the Christian faith. Religious people, particularly the Jews, brought a whole host of expectations and moral scruples into life with Christ. And in the capital city, Rome, they lived still with fellow Jews, but they had embraced Jesus Christ as their Messiah, found salvation in him. So they became outsiders while still living within their cultural community. 
and they continued to orient their daily lives around certain Jewish practices and customs, specifically related to food and to certain days. They would avoid meat, for instance, if they were sure it wasn't, or were not sure that it was kosher, and they would avoid wine if they thought it might have been connected, associated with an idol practice, a ritual. So the Jews lived a kind of schizophrenic existence. It wasn't that they were denying the gospel, which is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. But they overemphasized the value of some of those scruples. Two words here, verse 13, really important. The phrase stumbling block, one word in the original, and the word obstacle in some of your Bibles, hindrance or pitfall. The word obstacle translates a word common in the New Testament associated with spiritual downfall. It's something that cuts the legs right out from someone, spiritually speaking. It does them spiritual harm. The the word or phrase stumbling block translates the word skandalon, which we get our English word scandal from. It, It refers to a trap, to a snare, something unsuspecting, maybe even unconscious for people that trips them up so that they cannot get to their destination. That phrase is used often in the New Testament, uh, referring at times to Jesus and the gospel for Jews. 1 Corinthians 1 comes to mind, where they could not see him for who he is because he was a scandal, a stumbling block to the gospel. That phrase also has some checkered history among Christians, Ever since, it often means, quote, something that bothers me about the choices of someone else. If I think they're being unwise or compromising or controversial, then I can claim it as a stumbling block. That's not what it means. The concern here isn't merely that your freedom might irritate or annoy or offend a weaker brother. If a brother simply doesn't like your freedoms, that's their problem. But if your practice of that freedom leads your brother to sin or against his conscience, undermining his confidence in Christ, now that's your problem. See, the one bothers their preferences, but the other causes them to sin or reject the faith. There's a big difference there. Paul uses the phrase stumbling block for the second. Joel Zook, our pastoral resident, said this week, for the strong to defer to the weak is not sin. The strong person has freedom. But for the weak to defer to the strong is or may be sin. We'll see that as we look at this passage. Verse 14, Paul identifies himself. He identifies the Bible's teaching with the strong ones. Namely, that there's nothing inherently unclean which God has made. And he's specifically talking about food and drink and and Old Testament laws about them. Jesus talked about this. In a long passage worth your read, perhaps later today, Mark 7, Jesus has this heated, animated dialogue with the religious leaders of the day. And he focuses on the laws related to food for the Jews. Finally, in verse 20 of, excuse me, verse 19 of Mark 7, Jesus talks about food and says this, for it doesn't go into their heart, but into their stomach and then out of their body. There's a graphic lesson in digestion. In saying this, Jesus declared all foods 
clean. He went on, verse 20, what comes out of a person is what defiles them. There are a lot of uh, religious backgrounds, Jewish, pagan, and otherwise, including in our own day, that have a history of asceticism. Asceticism is uh, this constant push to avoid or abstain from a whole variety of things. Paul names the slogans of ascetics in Colossians chapter 2, verse 21. Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. It's always best to avoid. Know anything, anyone like that? He goes on to say in verse 23 of Colossians 2, such regulations indeed have the appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship, their false humility, their harsh treatment of the body, listen closely, but they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. Rules and regulations alone are not going to change your heart or your desires. Theologically, Paul says the strong ones here in Rome are correct. But if a person's not convinced on a certain matter, then they shouldn't partake, participate. That would be sin. And if you, strong ones, are giving them reason to ignore, to set aside their own scruples, then you threaten to cause them to sin. And that's not love. That's terrible. That causes your brother or sister pain, Paul says here. They are distressed, grieved, hurt. They're tempted to violate their own conscience and you're doing spiritual damage to them. That's not just irritating them. It's doing something against their faith. They may not yet have your faith or the ability to enjoy what you do. And in in the process, you may be demeaning them as they view themselves before God. Andy Nassali and J.D. Crowley write this, mature Christians should help other Christians train their consciences, but no one should force others to change their conscience. Big difference. Because if someone acts against conscience, their own conscience, then even that act is wrong. Not because it is inherently so, but for them it is. And when we deliberately do something that is grievous toward another brother or sister, we're not being loving. Alva J. McLean taught at Grace Seminary for many years, wrote this. Paul is saying, don't judge. Don't grieve your brother. Don't destroy the work of God. The first judge not is addressed to the weaker brother. The second grieve not is addressed to the stronger ones. And the third destroy not is addressed to both groups. And we see that at the end of verse 15. Second point in your outline, I have limitations in my freedom in Christ. I have limitations in my freedom or to my freedom in Christ. Romans 14.9, if you go back a couple of verses, speaks of the death and resurrection of Christ. It affirms our value. It offers us belonging. Paul comes back to that in verse 15, very bluntly. He says, do not by your eating destroy someone for whom Christ died. Destroy, very strong word. If we look elsewhere in the New Testament, it's often translated cause to perish, cause to ruin. For several reasons here, I'm not convinced that Paul means that our Christian freedoms can destroy the saving faith of a weak brother, but it certainly can undermine their confidence in Christ. That means how we live. That means the practical choices that you and I make, they can have huge consequences on the faith and the maturity of other believers. The practice of our freedoms 
matters. If Jesus died, Keller writes, for a weak brother or sister, then we must treat them with utmost care and sensitivity, no matter how weak they are. Catch this. If Jesus gave up his life for them, we can give up our freedom. If Jesus Christ has already paid the ultimate price for a weak Christian, how insignificant it is for a strong brother or sister to restrict their freedom. Paul says here, don't let your legitimate freedoms become a reason for people to accuse you of being selfish or even evil. It's not worth the consequences. Giving up my freedoms is a privilege for the sake of Christian fellowship. Because what we consume is ultimately trivial in life. Paul speaks of that here, the realities of eating and drinking. And throughout history, there are individuals, there are communities, churches that have debated what is acceptable eating and drinking for social or spiritual reasons. We we talked earlier, last week especially, about uh, meat and kosher meat for Jewish Christians. What about drink? Were were the Jews anti-alcohol? Actually, no. The concern of the Jews, the, the weak ones here, was not alcohol itself, but its association with idol rituals that could have been going on there. And just like meat, if they didn't know where it had come from or been used for, then they didn't want to partake. Paul says, you strong ones, you need perspective here. You're doing what the Pharisees would do, except in reverse. The the Pharisees here, they, they required strict adherence to the law. Instead of seeking justice and mercy and faith, they miss the point. Here, you strong ones, you're insisting on exercising your freedoms at the expense of what the Holy Spirit wants to produce in you. Freedoms with food and drink, including the fruit of the vine, are no big deal, Paul says, compared to the fruit of the Spirit, which is righteousness, peace, and joy. Paul says, because I know Christ, I'm willing to forgo those things in certain circumstances. I can limit my freedom. I can defer to my brother's weaker conscience and I don't have to violate it or him. It's not worth it. He means more to me than my freedoms. Love never disregards weak consciences. Love limits its own liberty out of respect for them. Get the point? Paul says that this is a triple win outcome. When I do this, I serve Christ, who's my master. I please God, who's my maker. And I receive affirmation and approval from others, which is my reputation as a Christian. It's a win, win, win when I think this way. Third, verse 19, I have responsibilities for my spiritual family's health. Again, Paul begins with a directive about life in the body of Christ. We should pursue peace and the mutual edification, the building up of each other. We should be obsessed with relational harmony and unity within the body of Christ, which is a very foreign idea in the world in which we live. We live in a society right now 
that is obsessed with being right and having its own independence, with being heard, with being esteemed. We cling to our freedoms and our independence at all costs. Twitter is the ultimate medium for the values of our age. I get to tell the world at any time what I think. I don't have to listen to feedback from anyone on my thoughts. No one gets to edit my thoughts for accuracy, for timeliness, or for tone. I have a perpetual megaphone and perpetual earplugs. The only person who matters is me. You can take it or leave it, but what you do with it is of no concern to me. Truth be told, a lot of Facebook posts are hardly better. That doesn't mean that social media is in and of itself bad. It does have some redeeming qualities. But it tends to be like steroids on the worst of our natures. I can't tell you how many times recently where I've read something and thought, I can't believe they're saying that. (laughs) Don't they realize this is permanent? This is public? Paul is saying here that our liberties, our independence is constrained within the body of Christ. We give up our claim to unlimited freedom, unrestricted independence. We we join a group. We join a team. We join a family. We no longer get to do whatever we please. And that's good for us, Paul says. Because when we live as free agents, we can do all kinds of damage to others. Paul is blunt here. Do not destroy the work of God for the sake of food. The unity, the harmony of the body of Christ are much more important. Careful, Paul says here. Careful how you use your freedoms. Again, Paul doesn't deny here that followers of Christ have freedom. There are lots of gray issues, including in the Christian life. Not everything is great, to be sure. We'll get to that in a bit. But many things are, and Paul celebrates those freedoms. In fact, as followers of Jesus, we can show the world that to love Christ means to properly enjoy the gifts that he's given to us. Christian faith is not simply a long list of do's and don'ts. But we also show them that we are much more into our family than we are into our freedom. We care much more about Christ than cultivating our own status. We're willing to restrict ourselves for the spiritual health and safety of our brother, of our sister. I'm unwilling to lose my brother because he is more important to me than the issue. You might sit here this morning and say, well, does that mean that Anyone with some pet issue can cancel all of our freedoms? No. Keller writes, stumble and fall mean much more than just bothering the weaker brother. A grumpy Christian could blackmail a whole church in that case. Maybe you know of stories. Some churches have Christians who are very weak and have an enormous number of scruples. Maybe that's you. This doesn't mean that the strong have to refrain from everything that upsets anyone else. It does mean that if there are weak brothers and sisters who have a settled conviction and who would be tempted to sin and to have their confidence in Christ undermined, 
then we're willing to refrain out of love. It's not just a theoretical idea. We have the greatest example in all of history in the person of Jesus Christ. We find that in Philippians chapter 2. Here's what Paul writes. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, and you do, he implies, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mind as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. See, Jesus had every right to the prerogatives, to the privileges of divinity. He was God after all. But because these creatures, you and me, mattered more to him than his own convenience and his own comfort and his own claims, he was willing to set them aside and act so that he could demonstrate love to lost people like you and me. That's our model. You and I can't die a substitutionary death for another person, let alone the whole world. Only Jesus could do that. But we can say, I have the freedom to set aside my liberties out of love for others. And millions of followers of Jesus have done that. Millions of followers of Jesus have shocked the world one person at a time by doing so. Millions of followers of Jesus have loved weak brothers or sisters, sometimes unlovely ones, because they lived for a higher purpose. They had a more noble calling than their rights. Paul was so filled with Christ's welcoming love that he happily gave up any personal preference that it might result in peace within the church for success in winning people outside the church to Christ. Is that true of you? Is that true of me? Finally, Paul concludes in verses 22 and 23 by telling us that we have duties to conscience before God. I have duties to my conscience before God. We all have ideas, convictions even about proper behavior and choices. And they're shaped by a lot of things, personality, upbringing, experiences, education, failures, frustrations. And they're also, I hope, shaped by our faith. After all, Romans 12, 2 says that we learn to discern the will of God as we're transformed by the renewing of our minds. And the renewing of our minds happens through saturating them in the scriptures. And as we do, we gain this increasing confidence in life, even in complicated situations, to respond as God would want. The Spirit of God gives us wisdom to recall the Word of God in life. This is the benefit of a well-developed conscience. You don't find the word conscience anywhere in Romans 14, but it lurks behind every verse. How do we learn, how do we live with our conscience? 
Well, one thing is we realize that mine isn't yours and yours isn't mine. And there are gray areas in life and they may be different. You were shaped by, by different influences and so was I. But you and I are both shaped by the same spirit of God and the same scriptures from God. And so when Paul says here, keep it to yourself, he's telling the strong believers, those who have freedom, that they are free to eat and drink whatever they wish in the privacy of their own homes or with other strong believers, but that they should abstain from those things when they're with those who are weak for their good. Not everything that I believe or am convinced of needs to be vented publicly. Not every conviction I have or freedom I own has to be shared or bragged about. There's no need to either parade your views or to impose them on other people. Really key word. Two principles in this passage. First one, principle of faith. Everything we do should be done from faith, verse 23. We need to educate our consciences by the word of God so that we become strong in faith and grow in our convictions and in our Christian liberty. Second principle, principle of love. Verse 15, everything ought to be done according to love. That we remember who our fellow Christians are. That, that you are people for whom Christ died. And so I honor you, I serve you, I respect you and your consciences. I'm not to despise you, not to judge you. I'm to attend to my conscience and make sure it's being shaped by Christ. It's been said often in essentials unity, in non-essentials liberty, in all things charity or love. And when we act in faith and love, we make the issue, the glory of God and the building up of my brothers and sisters, not the issue itself. See, my focus then is not my freedoms, but it's my conscience. It's the well-being of my spiritual siblings. In the remainder of our time, I'd like to just review quickly the principles that we looked at last week and a couple areas of application for us. These are available online, gracepolaris.org slash sermons. You can find all these and write them down in the timeliness that you have. Don't rush if you're one of those people who needs to get every word. Just listen. Number one, I should accept anyone the Lord has accepted in the gospel. If he's accepted you, then so should I. Number two, I should not despise or condemn anyone for whom there is now no condemnation in the gospel. If there's no condemnation from God for you, then there shouldn't be from me either. Number three, I should not seek out issues for argument. And let's read that again. I should not seek out issues for argument. Instead, I should highlight our common Lord, faith, and witness. Number four, I should remember that each of us is accountable to the Lord, to Christ. Verse 12, Romans 14 makes that clear. Principle five, I should neither impose my lifestyle convictions on others, that's legalism, nor be condescending toward those who have more convictions than I, that's arrogance. Six, I must ensure that my conscience is in line with the freedom of the gospel and that my life is submitted to the gospel. Do you hear the balance there? We have freedom in Christ and we submit to Christ. Finally, seven, 
I must remember that the larger spiritual battle, I must remember the larger spiritual battle and recognize the real enemies are my brothers and sisters. Right? Wrong. The real enemies are not you. The real enemies are the spiritual forces, Ephesians 6 tells us, that are seeking at every turn to divide and disrupt the harmony and unity in the body of Christ. And we have to see that. Some application. Last week, if you were here, you watched online, we looked at uh, two uh, oft-debated issues in the Christian's life, more societal, more public in nature. Christians and voting and the coronavirus precautions and masks. Well, today we're going to look at a couple more issues that perhaps come closer to home, but are less urgent and perhaps more personal. First, alcohol. It's right in this passage. Many followers of Jesus, especially in this country, find the consumption of alcohol or lack thereof a perennial topic for debate and disagreement. After all, our country had a constitutional amendment on this and then reversed it. So it's been a big deal. To some degree, the topic is partly generational and it's affected by our church backgrounds, our religious backgrounds, even the place we live. Do you know anything about the history of Westerville, for instance? Family history is also a factor. Here's my life journey related to alcohol. I grew up in a family where alcohol was never consumed. Um, the closest contact I had with alcohol growing up was a bottle of sparkling grape juice before some birthdays and maybe New Year's Eve. So it was no issue for me. I never saw it, never saw it abused. Part of that was the family history of my parents' um, forefathers. First time alcohol hit my lips was during college on a mission trip to Europe. Uh, we were in a very conservative Plymouth Brethren Church in the city of Prague celebrating communion. And the time came for the uh, cup to be passed. One large cup passed around. And after you drank, you wiped it off and gave it to the next person. It wouldn't pass in COVID times at all. <laughs> so when my turn came, my lips immediately burnt and so did my throat. That must be real wine, I thought. And it was. A few years later after seminary, Letitia and I spent some time in campus ministry down here at Ohio State. And that was my first metaphorical taste of the abuse of alcohol. I can't say that much good happens or happened with alcohol in that environment. It is a tragedy, and some of you know that. Then we went to Europe, and I saw alcohol uh, enjoyed as a beverage like I had never seen it here. Now, alcoholic abuse and drunkenness are, are a big issue there as they are here. But those two continents, North America and Europe, are very different in viewing alcohol as a beverage. So what about alcohol for the believer today? Well, if you look in the Bible, biblically, wine is described in varied and nuanced terms. Wine can be a sign of celebration, a, time of, uh, a sign of judgment, a sign of uh, fertility, a sign of anticipation, a sign of drunkenness. Remember, Paul wrote to Timothy and said, take some wine, it's good for your stomach, a kind of medication. Paul warned against the controlling effects of alcohol. Paul condemned drunkenness, as the Bible does throughout. It's a black and white issue, drunkenness, that is. And yet wine was celebrated as the result of Jesus' first miracle. Here's the point. Anybody who says that wine is always good or always bad has read the Bible poorly. 
It's a created gift from God for enjoyment. It's one that can be celebrated, and it can also be abused. And some of you know the devastation of it full well. Drunkenness is prohibited throughout the Bible and for us. Alcohol is not. And that's true of many things. In proper boundaries, fine. In excess, sin. So can a believer drink alcohol? Should you drink alcohol? That's a question for you to answer. Does your conscience allow it? Does your age, your responsibility to parents or government authorities allow it? Are you prone to abuse experientially, maybe even genetically? How does it affect other people around you who would participate or observe? Where do you partake? Should you advertise your liberty and maybe your scruples? How does that affect how others view the gospel? These are the kind of questions that Paul wants us to ask because the issue is not really the issue. The issue is the gospel and our conscience and love for others and the glory of God. Second, entertainment and media choices. Maybe you've noticed that today almost everything you watch and listen to is private. Unless you have a device that somehow your parents have access to or your employer does, you're alone in terms of your choices and your boundaries. Apart from maybe your family who sees something on the big screen, what you watch, what you hear, what you read even is seen by almost none. I'm not making a value judgment there. That's just a fact. And it's a very different world than the one that I grew up in and certainly generations before me. We can live our lives in almost unimaginable privacy now. So what do you choose? How much time do you spend on sports, on news, on shows, on podcasts, on YouTube, on fantasies? Even if no one else knows, God knows. How does your life fare before Philippians 4.8, where Paul writes, Finally, brothers and sisters, that's us. Whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, these things on them think about. So what's renewing your mind? What's saturating your mind? Of course, we think we live in privacy, but we end up telling people all the time, online or in person, what's important to us what we listen to, what we follow. We're not the closed book that we often think we are. Our social media posts, our screen time, our reports of what we did on the weekend tells everyone what's important. Here's the question. Does what you choose lead to peace and the building up of others? Or do you help destroy the work of God among others for sake of pleasure? If people really knew what you watched, what you heard, what you cared about, and they probably do, would that undermine their confidence in Christ? Would that undermine your witness? It's not to say that entertainment choices, media choices are all right and wrong. There's lots of gray there. But they reveal something about our hearts and they reveal something about what matters to us in life. What do they reveal from your life? What we choose affects others, reflects on the gospel. 
and we all overestimate the quality of our media usage, and we underestimate the quantity. Let's close with what New Testament scholar Doug Moo said about this passage as a reminder of what matters in Christian living. Number one, believers continue to differ over certain matters that are not essential to the Christian faith. Do I have an amen there? Of course. Number two, we should learn to relate to people in terms of their background and particular scruples in a loving manner. Love matters. And three, the unity of the church and the glory of Christ should be our ultimate goal. The issue is what does this say about him and what does it say about us? And when we make that priority, watch out world, watch us. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the practicality of the Bible. And we thank you that human nature hasn't changed. It still needs to be transformed by you. We still need you to make us who we ought to be and to live how we ought. Thank you, Jesus, for the ways in which you've entered the lives of so many in this room and part of our church family so that we could be transformed by the renewing of our minds. And I pray that you, we would let you do that work more and more. And I pray for anyone who says, how can I become who I'm not? that they would turn in faith to you, Jesus, and entrust their lives to you for salvation and transformation. Lord, in this time, in this place, in this season, we so want to look like you, and our world so needs to see what you look like. May that be in us. In Jesus' name, amen.